Hello, Theologizers, and welcome back to Theobros. It's been a hot minute since we recorded last. We apologize because, you know, life gets in the way sometimes, you know, whether it be school, work, wedding planning, and uh, the big one that we're going to talk about, I'm going to call it the big C, Ben, that's gotten in our way, the big corona virus, which is taking the world by storm. It's in a theater near you. It's lurking in the streets. Just don't let it in your house. Put that blood of the lamb across your door so the corona bypasses your <laughs> your apartment. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm Brett, one half of the Theo Bros, with my brother, as always. Ben, how's it going, y'all? Yeah, so we thought we'd uh, come at you with an episode just kind of talking about you know, uh, our thoughts and feelings about this pandemic from a theological, spiritual perspective, as always. The latest on the coronavirus emergency. Overnight, a new case was confirmed in the U.S., bringing the total here to 14. More than 15,000 new cases in China and worldwide. The number of cases now tops 60,000. And this as the situation grows more desperate on that quarantine cruise ship in Japan. Well, within the last hour, we've had uh, the latest uh, new figures from Italy, the current centre of the pandemic. 743 people have died in the last 24 hours. It's the second worst daily figure. Spain has just lived through its deadliest 24 hours since the coronavirus pandemic hit the country. Health authorities announced that 769 people had passed away, with a total number of cases rocketing to nearly 60,000. Tonight across our nation, in big cities and rural communities, a new reality is hitting home for Americans. The U.S. death toll has now reached a grim milestone as the number of infected soars to extraordinary levels. Well, this is something to be concerned with, of course, obviously. Uh, there is no place in the kingdom for fear. Uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And I would encourage all of us to lean in on that spirit. The Holy Spirit, God Almighty, is within you. Isaiah says, and he didn't have the full revelation of Jesus, but Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, he says, as, as Israel is coming under attack by this vicious army, right in the middle of it, he says, God will give perfect peace to all those whose eyes are fixed on him. Now we can shake our fists at this and say how terrible and or perhaps can we make this a Pascalian moment and say okay I've got the opportunity now it's a rare opportunity to sit quietly in a room alone and wrestle with the deep questions of life maybe this is a great spiritual opportunity there are some difficult times ahead, but this is an opportunity for us as the church to be the church. This has always been who we are. This has always been our calling. From the very beginning of the church, we were a Jesus movement who learned from Jesus how to show radical love and radical compassion to the people around us who are hurting the most. I mean, that's how the church grew. This is who we are. We were made for this, for this time and for this situation.
what then shall we say in response? If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give all things? He'll provide them. What do we need? I mean, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or coronavirus? No. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including the ramifications of the fall that involve rampant, rebellious germs. Nothing. Because of that king we were just singing about, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And what's the proof? It's seen in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the things that Kaylee and I have been talking about recently is how part of why I think this feels so disorienting for most people in America and maybe more generally across the, you know, the Western world is because we have been, again, especially in the United States, we've been abnormally blessed with a period of relative peace and stability. Again, not that we haven't had... Uh, I mean, domestically, not that we haven't had our issues, you know, like the war in Iraq and stuff like that in recent times, but relative to the rest of the world and most of history, we've been able to live again, at least for the last few decades in, again, like I said, relative political, social, you know, stability. And so having this very sudden kind of exponential case of social mixed with, you know, political unrest because of this pandemic and how it's interacting with the election this year. And it just seems like, you know, 2020 just seems like it's already a year that's going to go down in history as infamous. It just seems like so many things are coming together and the pandemic is just this like epic icing on this, you know, unstable cake. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. Um, And so all that to say, I think, again, part of our experiencing whiplash or disorientation is less because, oh, this is so unique. I mean, it is a unique virus, but in terms of a sense of large social and political unrest caused by various factors, that's much more the norm in most states and cultures across the world and, and throughout history. Yeah, in a way, I feel like it's almost like a it's a kind of wake up call. So for example, with the idea of scarcity, it's hard for Americans to think about the idea that resources can be scarce. 
Yes. Um, at least those of us, again, who are blessed not to be, you know, in extreme poverty or homeless, but, you know, the average American, you know, lower middle class and above doesn't really have much of a sense day to day of this real scarcity of resources. And now all of a sudden we're getting a very small taste of that with having to, you know, at least here in New York, which is kind of the epicenter of the pandemic in the United States right now, really having to ration resources having to go to the grocery store a lot less often and you're realizing that you're not going to be able to get a lot of the stuff that you usually get. We're just not used to that. We're used to such a level of affluence, you know, even if we don't view ourselves as rich, but just this constant accessibility. And in our eyes, it's like, it's like, oh, resources aren't really scarce, but this is kind of forcing us to realize no resources are always scarce. Yes. We, we just usually don't realize it. Yes. Let me jump off of that. Yeah, that's that's a great point. That's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately as well is, you know, when you've heard in the past, like you're blessed to live in America. And, you know, even if you you look at someone else who has a lot more money than you, the bigger house than you, the nicer car, like we we get jealous and we think we don't have as much. We're always comparing, contrasting ourselves to people that we think have more than us. And then, you know, we always hear the voice saying, no, you are blessed. If you're living in America and you're lower to middle class, you are rich compared to the average person in the world. And I don't think I think we've always heard that, you know, people say that, but we don't really we didn't really we don't really know what that means. We didn't unpack that. We just like, oh, okay. Because everything in our experience has been a time of prosperity, blessing, and abundance in one of the richest nations that have has ever graced the planet, the one of the most comfortable nations that has ever existed. We don't look at, at it that way most of the time. We take it for granted. This is just how it is because our whole life, this is all we know. So yeah. we just assume this is this is just the way it is. And you hear these tall tales about people who have struggled and people throughout history who have struggled you know, the Middle Ages, Rome, you know, the, the Black Plague, the wars, the Holocaust, all this. And it's all history to us. It's, it's like, OK, I get it, but I don't we don't get it. You know, yeah. and I think when something like this happens, it finally, I think, forces us to realize that our privilege and our level of comfort is not to be taken for granted. And another thing is, it's not this solid bedrock of safety that we think it is. That there's a fine line between the freedoms that we have, the comfort that we have, the blessing that we have, and that going to hell in a handbasket. It's a yeah. much more thin line than we realize, and this pandemic yeah. has brought that to the forefront. Yeah. I think that scares a lot of people. Like, oh, crap, society isn't as stable as we thought. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And a lot of and, and to bring it to theology a little bit, Ben, is a lot of people put their faith in man-made systems, yeah. in man-made governments, in yep. capitalism, in the markets. Or in social welfare systems. Social right? welfare that, systems. That we have enough money to even be able to establish anything like that. Yes. Yeah. And we put all of our faith into that as a whole. And that is the exact opposite thing that we should be doing as believers and as people who believe in the hope of Christ and the hope of God. And the Bible warns against that. 
and I'm guilty yeah. of it too. Yeah. But it, it just brings it, it just it's a visceral not it's not even that bad, right? But but we're so comfortable that even a little bit of inconvenience yeah. and stuff throws us off. Yeah. And forces us to reconsider kind of everything and what yeah. we're putting our faith in and what we're putting our trust in. Yeah. Well, like you said, we're this isn't, you know, not to downplay, obviously a lot of people are, are suffering, but in terms yeah. of the, the overall effect, like you said, it's really just kind of a small taste. And I think it's also a wake up call again, even within our own American history that we can't even view like all of American history or all people in America as always having been that blessed. Obviously, you know, no. we had, you know, a century plus of, you know, basically a reign of terror against African Americans and Indian populations, Native American populations in the United States. And so it just forces us yeah, to rethink, like, what do we even mean by America being a blessed nation, quote unquote, in many ways, like it is objectively, but also even that blessing has been limited to specific times in American history and to specific, specific people and specific groups of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, relating it to, to African Americans in this country. Again, thinking about the issue of kind of a scarcity of resources, not being able to find everything you want at the grocery store or go to the grocery store half the time, basic things like that. And, you know, you might think of African Americans in the Jim Crow South, right? Where a ton of just like basic, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, stores and amenities were either unavailable to you or you had second rate versions of them. So you felt that kind of even that like local scarcity as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're just getting just such a small little taste of what has been such the norm of scarcity and suffering and instability for so many people. Um, but like yeah. you said, Brett, it kind of forces us to realize that, especially you know all the stuff that's been leading up to this election and in 2016, is both sides have been so obsessed in their intent and what they're devoting their attention to and what they put their hopes in uh, with the nation, with America, yes. with, with America and its government, those, you know, on the far right, so to speak, who are kind of all in for the Trump agenda. We will make America great again. I think a lot of those people, again, still have this view that the United States deserves this stability and so forth insofar as it's a Christian nation and we need to restore that. But again, what this is showing is that like the United States, I think it has been blessed by God in many unique ways, but it's not, it's not the new Jerusalem. It's not ancient Israel. It's just another country that's, that's been blessed, but it's never really been a Christian nation in any really deep sense. And, and especially not recently, you know, and so even just this idea of, oh, make America great again as this project, we're going to like reestablish America, like that shouldn't really be our focus. And then again, on the on the farther left, with people like Bernie Sanders and his followers. I think we are touching a nerve with the American people who understand that establishment politics is just not good enough. We need bold changes. We need a political revolution. Who think or again, I'm not saying, oh, if you support Trump or if you support Bernie, then you think this way. But but I think you can see a kind of tendency with a lot of people in both these ends of the spectrum is this idea that what we mean to do, our hope is in the government being able to help people. 
is in the central government mm-hmm. being able to prevent people from suffering. And although that's that's a noble cause, it's always a transient and a fragile goal. And it will never last. And it will never be as good or as effective as you think it can or should be. Yep. Right. And so it should never be, we shouldn't have this sense of desperation over those issues, right? It's a failure to accept reality as it is in this fallen world and to live in this illusion, again, that we can somehow bring the kingdom here on earth now, right? Through political will. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that's one of the biggest things that I think is coming from this pandemic is the realization that the government in particular, whether you're conservative or liberal, is not the end-all, say-all, saving grace of humanity, and is not the beacon of stability and light that some people think it is. Yeah. A lot of people think it is. Because again, if you're an atheist or or you don't have a, a strong sense of a, a spiritual life or a trust in God or a trust in something greater, you need to find your hope and put your trust in something. So what it, what are a lot of people going to do in that situation who aren't believers? They're going to put their trust in governments. Yeah. Because what else is there at that point? Everyone needs a sense of hope and needs to lean on something bigger than themselves to give them a sense of stability, a sense of calm, a sense that they're taken care of and everything is okay. And if you divorce God from the equation, seven, eight times out of 10, it's going to be the government that you're going to lean into. Nothing yeah. wrong with government, nothing wrong with the U.S. You know, we're patriotic, love the country. You know, I think governments can do a lot of good, especially the democracy we're all blessed to live in, I, you know, not, not taking away from any of that. It's done a lot of good, but we always need to have that recognition that yes, it's doing a lot of good, but we cannot put our end all say all trust and hope in those systems because yeah. they're inevitably going to fail us. They're finite systems. They're fragile systems in a lot of ways. We want to try to carry it forth implement our Christian values into those systems as much as we can. But we also have to have a realistic expectation that, like you were saying, Ben, this is not the new Jerusalem. This is not going to be heaven on earth. This is not going to be John Lennon singing Imagine to us as the USA government takes us into a blissful new creation in the future. It's just, it's just not going to happen that way. So I think it's, this can be a blessing in disguise, even though it's bringing a lot of suffering. I think it's forcing a lot of people to reorient themselves just at the core with what is life all about? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like what, what is the purpose of all this? Where can I find rest? Where can I find refuge and a trust? And where can I find peace despite all the craziness of this world that we live in? Yeah. Because we always think we can somehow hem ourselves in from things like plague and famine and death, right? And tragedy if we just do the right things. And sometimes again, you know, nature and nature as God is like, no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can't do that. And hey, you know, we go back to spiritual warfare and all this as well. There are active 
evil spiritual forces at work here. A virus like this is a perfect example of the fallen creation, how the creation is in bondage to these, this evil spiritual realm and how there is spiritual forces at work in this. And the spirit of fear and of anxiety and these, this evil side of this warfare is trying to throw us into chaos, to throw us into fear and anxiousness and turning away from our trust in God. So as long as this creation is in bondage, things like this are going to happen. Yeah. But the, the hope in all of this is that there's a much stronger end-all, say-all spiritual force at work in this world, and that's Jesus Christ. And he tells us the end of the story. And so many times, it's not only we have hope that the ending is going to be okay, but we also have hope that we can have peace in the midst of the, 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 the tragedy that can come from the, the story of this redemption in the meantime. That we're not just thrown to the wolves, that even though it looks bad, that a much stronger spirit is at work in the world than the evil spirits that create tragedy and viruses and famine and scarcity and chaos. And that's the spirit of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. And what a great opportunity in a time like this to lean into that spirit. Because God, the the scripture claims that that spirit is faithful we're not going to be leaning into something that's not going to support us, that's not going to provide refuge, that's not going to provide peace. That the Spirit of God is, the most, in the end, the most powerful thing in this universe. And what a golden opportunity for us to lean into it in the middle of a storm like this, a worldwide storm. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. So one thing I've been thinking about too, again, in terms of God and Christ, right? Christ is still ruling, right? He's ascended. It's it's a stereotypical thing to say, but you know, Christ is on his throne. Yeah. Right? So we can't forget that. He is the Lord of history. And I think like you said, we need to keep in mind that there is a spiritual warfare aspect of this, that part of the biblical worldview is that natural evil is not purely natural. In a, in a way, it's not natural at all, right? It's unnatural fallenness and that it ha- does have something to do with the influence of the devil and his angels. But another thing that the Bible teaches is that within God's providence, God actually, even again, with his permissive will and his foresight, even uses the activity of the devil and his angels and the chaos they bring for his own plans. I think this comes out especially strong yes. in, the, in, in the book of Job. God lets Satan go and tempt Job and bring this great suffering and plague and death into his world, but for a specific purpose. Um, but I wanted to read, this is part of God's reply to Job towards the end of the book of Job, where he talks about the... So one of the ways that Satan and the principle of chaos and creation that he's associated with in the Bible is often referred to as, as Leviathan. Mm-hmm. Leviathan, the sea monster, that, which is this chaos monster that's associated with Satan and his activities in the Bible. It's a kind of mythic way of portraying that. 
And there's a part that's really interesting in, again, God's poetic speech in response to Job, where he says this about Leviathan. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting for reflection. I'll read really quickly. So God says, can you pull, speaking to Job, uh, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put on a leash for the young woman in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. And hope of subduing, subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. I think we can relate to that right now with seeing the chaos of a pandemic. Okay. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of the dawn. Flames stream out of its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. And it goes on. Uh, it says, it makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think, one would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. I thought that last bit is really interesting, but yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? It's a pretty epic description of the chaos monster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that whole passage was was all the description of the the Leviathan. Yeah. I think it's very relevant to the coronavirus and what we feel right now. I think it's a very poetic description of that and how God's not downplaying what that is, but despite that we still have hope that God is infinitely bigger yeah. than what we see in front of us. All right. What are your thoughts? Yeah, not only is he infinitely bigger, but like it says at the beginning, uh, when God's asking these rhetorical questions, the, you know, the answer is that I can. So it's, when he says, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord in its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? He's saying, I do these things. The chaos monster uh, is terrible, but it's under my providential control. And that's what we have to remember. That is the hope we have. Because if we look at something so daunting as the Leviathan or the coronavirus, without the knowledge deep down 
that God has everything under control despite what we see, then we're going to be overwhelmed by the monster that we see in front of us. Yeah. And also, we feel like we have to do it all. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. crap. The coronavirus is spreading. We got we to gotta fix this. We got to figure this out. We got to shut things down. We, we're gonna okay. So we got it under control. We're, we're gonna we're gonna take care of it. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna bring things back to how they were before. We're us 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 us. We got it. We got to figure it out rather than not being ignorant to it, being wise about trying to deal with it. But in everything that we're doing, I'm doing a Bishop Robert Barron point to the <laughs> right now. In everything that we're doing, we keep our eyes fixed on the one who does have it under control, and we bring our prayers to the God that's infinitely bigger, that's in, that's in control of this all. Because yeah. we and can't we, handle the Leviathan. We can't do it. Yeah. yeah. And that's just so much of life in general that we've talked about many times before on this podcast, is we can't yeah. do it. And I think that's part of why God goes into this long description. Because you might think, oh, it's kind of weird that uh, it's almost like God is singing the praises of, of yeah. this Leviathan, right? Yeah. Um. He ascribes to it almost this kind of terrible beauty. But I think part of why he goes in that description is to really reinforce. He's like, this thing is not something that by your own power and institutions you can subdue. Yes. This is the chaos in the universe, you know, and the prince of chaos, Satan, and his chaos peons, all the other demons. <laughs> They're not yep. something that you can subdue. Yes. But exactly. I can. It's my pet. <laughs> That's so awesome. And it, it just goes to the fact, again, that we're supposed to be children of yeah. God. We are children. That doesn't mean we don't have responsibility. But again, that is what we are. We're not created to, like we've talked about before, to grasp from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before we're ready. We're not created to fix the world through our own man-made systems. You know what I mean? We're not created to be self-independent, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. We're the king of our own castle. We're, we are the gods of our lives. That's not That goes against the very nature of how we're created. We're created from God. Yeah. to be his children, to rely on the love of God. We're created for God to be in communion and to be in trust and to get all of our life and all of our trust and peace with from the spirit of the God of the universe. And it shows that scripture knows what it's talking about, that the, the word of God through the scriptures is timeless. <laughs> Genesis speaks to this. Job speaks to this. You know, the, the coronavirus is nothing new to yeah. the world. It's nothing new to God, even though it feels new to us. That is just turning the volume up on what's always the case of the brokenness of the world to 11 in our minds. Like, hey, yeah. guys, remember, you're living in a broken place. But fear not, take heart. I've overcome the world. Yeah. But stop living in this false sense that you guys are going to create paradise in this universe that you have it all under control yeah 
And I'm preaching to myself too. I, I fall into no, that I trap just as much as the next person, especially living in the United States in 2020. Middle yeah. class, the U.S. You know, I'm, I'm just as guilty as the rest. But I think God can work powerfully in this situation. Yeah. So that's a good transition. Maybe to talk a little bit about an idea that has often been abused and is very controversial. And again, which is this, uh, what is this question of what is the relationship between God and God's activity and natural disasters and plagues and famine and things like this coming upon a society or a country or a people? Because again, we, we have, I think a lot of people immediately, um, you know, as I do, I have more in the past we react against the kind of worst version of the idea that God is involved somehow in that, you know, so like after hurricane, you know, Katrina happened or what happened in Haiti and stuff like that, you know, there are a lot of TV preachers, fundamentalists that came out and they're like, this is the judgment of God, right? This is the judgment of God in America, or this is the judgment of God, you know, on the, you know, the, the pagan practices or whatever of the Haitian people. Um, yeah. And I think people very understandably have a very visceral reaction against at least that kind of way of putting it or put or putting it in a flippant way where you don't really include yourself in that judgment. Of course not. But so I kind of wanted to talk about like how to navigate that idea, because I think there are two of extremes that are errors that we can fall into. And I think one is that idea or this flippant, I know the mind of a God. I know that that this is a positive judgment of God and I know why it's happening. Yeah. But then I think there's the other extreme, which is almost like deist that says, oh, God's hands off. He just watches this stuff unfold. It's not really part of his plan in any way because God could never even want to permit people to suffer and die. And I think that's not really a, an adequate mm -hmm. description of a biblical view either. So what are your initial thoughts on that, Brett? Well, I think, you know, like so many things, we tend to go to one extreme or the other, just like you're talking about. You just laid out both extremes of the spectrum of how people react and try to make sense of natural disasters spiritually. And you know me, Ben, I'm Mr. Middle Ground, <laughs> okay? We struggle to find the middle ground and the mystery in certain things, but to maybe see some nuance in some of these polarizing things that happen in our experience. And I think with natural disasters, we got to go back to our foundation of scripture, the foundation of our creed, of our Christian faith, which is God is all good, all loving. God is revealed through the suffering, ministry, death, resurrection of Christ, self-sacrificial love for every human being that's ever existed and for every human being that's on the face of the planet now and natural disasters which seem random a lot of times have taken out huge numbers of innocent good people that god has loved it almost seems like a random monster whether it be the plague or it be tsunamis or hurricanes that just creates so much widespread suffering and death and disaster on the world and it's not man-made it's not like the holocaust and the nazis or 
a, a rapist or a murderer or, or something that we can point to a human being as the culprit. It's purely natural. So the way I make sense of this, and a lot of pastors and theologians that I've read and watched over the years that's influenced me in this, I think one in particular, Greg Boyd, mm-hmm. is that a natural disaster is not the hand of God. God revealed in Christ shows us the nature of God. Therefore, God is never, ever going to be behind death, suffering, disaster. Even if someone claims that's divine judgment, God's hand will never be behind that. But we know God Mm -hmm. is all-powerful. So I think there's a mysterious permittance to the fallen spiritual realm and the fallen physical realm and how those two are influencing each other, especially the fallen angels, Satan, the demonic powers influencing the spiritual realm. There is a mysterious permittance by God of these evils that we are not exactly sure why, but we are assured that God is not behind these directly. He is indirectly in a permittive state i think letting free will play itself out across the universe across the spiritual realm which has many times these horrible consequences whether it be man-made holocaust type evil or demonic made natural evil that visits this earth so the way i look at it is god's not directly behind it he's in a permittive state and his nature at all times for all people at all moments and everywhere is deep fatherly love and redemption and grace and bringing beauty from all of this. Why he permits this, that's a mystery. But we, what we are assured is that through all of this, we can still trust that God is good all the time. That, he, that never for a second wavers, no matter what horrible things we witness and that i think the biggest principle is that god redeems the darkest most broken most black hole experiences of the human condition the fallen angels the fallen creation and that in the end in in a way we can't even fathom God is bringing it all to a culmination of beauty and peace and restoration. That is the longing of all of our hearts. Yeah. But it's that trust in the midst of the chaos. So these flippant answers, like it's divine judgment from God, or that God is just this deistic being, just completely not involved, just letting it happen. He's in a primitive state, but he's also in a state of deep, deep work through everything intimacy with people who are dying and suffering he's he's suffering too god is in the inside of the suffering he's he's like inside of the death of that is creating and that he's exploding the evil from the inside out into something into ultimate beauty and reconciliation it's not like a perfectly rational thing but there's mysteries at play there because it goes back to job We are Job in a sense. We're like, why? Tell me the rational answer. Why is this happening? Give me a, give me the the straight answer, God. And God says, the answer is you trust in my goodness and you let me handle it. And I think in the end, that's what we have to do in the face of this, and not give it these extreme, flippant answers that so many Christians like to give. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think we're on the same page with most of that. I guess I would just say that I think there's a worry with saying that, well, let me say it this way. The Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments, does consistently use language, uh, and God uses this language of himself, um, again, in both Testaments, of a positive involvement in the judgments on nations and peoples. But there's this, like you said, there's a mystery, though. There's a double-sidedness. Mm -hmm. Because so that some of the judgments are really direct. So you think of, um, I forgot their names. I think it was, uh, oh, I'm not going to say them right, uh, Nedab and Abihu or something like that. You mean the, the New Testament? No, this is the Old Testament. But oh. there's a similar thing in the New Testament. Yeah. Where they... They do something wrong and like the glory fire from the tabernacle comes out and consumes them and their families. <laughs> yeah. Or you think of, um, what's their name? The, uh, you know, the two people in the book of Acts that were like hiding their money from the church or something. And then they got struck dead. And Peter said it was the judgment I, of the Holy Spirit. I, I agree. Well, let me jump in real quick. I know that there's scriptures that speak to that sort of more lane they use the language more that positive judgment and maybe there's an aspect to it but again first of all we're not the ones who get to decide what is and what isn't a positive yeah. judgment if there is one yeah we're not the ones who get to decide that or speak to that that's god's the other thing is is regardless of what we make of those passages it doesn't take away from the fact that we need to understand those like we talked about before, we need to suffer the scriptures, suffer the scriptures. We, we need to understand those through the light of Christ and through this, the nature of who we know God to be through the scriptures as well. So yeah. if, if understanding what that positive judgment looks like, even if it uses harsh language in the scriptures, undercuts the nature of God as revealed through Christ, we need to keep on digging there because there yeah. there's there's a level of understanding there through the light of Christ. There's a gold nugget somewhere deep down in that dirt that we need to get to until we get to that nugget of a sort of trust in what that divine judgment means in those scriptures even though on the surface it might just seem harsh. That's why we have to keep on digging. Not yeah. to take anything away from it, but so the the Holy Spirit can reveal whatever the mysterious truth is in that. Yeah. And if we stop digging before we get to that level of peace, of reconciling what that divine judgment means, holding that in one hand while also holding God revealed through Christ in the other hand, if we stop short of that and we just say, oh, that's what the scripture says, and it seems harsh, and it probably is freaking harsh, and that's, as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I got to say about that. You know what I mean? And we move forward and it starts to undercut our view of God revealed in Christ. And then that's dangerous. So I, I think those scriptures are very important that it's in the Bible. I'm not taking that away. The Bible is divinely inspired. But sometimes when we come up against tensions, we got to keep on digging. We got to keep on praying and yeah. bringing it to God and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal the core of the truth that this is this should be revealing to us. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that, and I I think that part of 
how we end up having, I think, um, a skewed or incomplete view in, in any direction is usually because we read a passage and we're, we're not reading it intertextually. Yeah. So, so I just finished finally reading straight through the Old Testament the other day. Congrats. And, and the longest version, the, uh, the Orthodox canon. <laughs> oh, man. So I got all Heck the yeah. uh, quote-unquote apocryphal books in there, which are really great, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and that's one thing I realize is that until you've read, until you see the big picture and like everything the scripture is teaching in context, then you're not really going to have an adequate grasp of particular passages or why God is doing particular things. I think it it is... Yeah. I've really seen kind of come to life in my own reading of scripture, the principle that scripture illuminates scripture. Um, yeah. There are certain things if you just read and you don't have a sense of their context and redemptive history and later prophecy and Jesus and all these things, then it's going to be like, man, that seems really arbitrary or that seems just cruel and like God is vindictive because you don't see the bigger providential context and the progressive revelation of God to his people. So in that context, I guess, from ver both from reading the Bible and from reading some stuff in the church fathers, especially Clement of Alexandria, who was very influential in origin. He was the first Alexandrian Christian theologian. I've come to, a, there's a particular paradigm that I would call a pedagogical paradigm that I feel like has been the most helpful in my own mind in coming to grips with this duality that we're talking about, where you have this language where God has some level of personal involvement and intention and judgment. But on the other hand, it's not this like vindictive, cruel thing, right? That doesn't have the good of particular people and of nations in mind. And I think it's coincidental because I wasn't planning on reading this passage originally, but the passage right at the end of this Job poem, I feel like really expresses this idea that I think we can talk about for a few minutes before we close out, <clears throat> where he says of the Leviathan, he says, it looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. And I think that <clears throat> relates to this kind of pedagogical understanding, which is, and you see this in the prophets as well, God brings judgments, usually, usually not directly. It's usually like you're saying through a foreknowing permission or maybe, maybe a prompting of other agents, whether demonic or human agents, to come and bring disaster or, or suffering. So this is what God does through Satan in the book of Job. And throughout the Old Testament, the primary mode is that God is using nations to judge each other. So we're from the nations, say Babylon's perspective, they're just doing what they want. God in some way, whether permissively or, and you know, God's not controlling people. Um, but somehow in his providence, right, he uses Babylon, say, or Assyria to come and judge Israel for violating the covenant, right? And they're brought into exile. And God says, like, this is something he's done through these nations. <clears throat> but whenever, especially when we read the prophets, like, is God just doing this in a purely retributive way? Or is it with some larger good in mind? And something that's really come out to me, you know, reading Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these, these exilic prophets, is they say that the reason God does this is to try to heal human beings and human societies. 
and it's for their salvation. Yeah. And, you know, God says uh, in one of the later prophets, I do not willingly afflict the children of men. He says, I, I take no pleasure in the death of a sinner. But on the other hand, he says that he is involved in some way. It is part of his plan to use suffering as a judgment, but it's as a pedagogical judgment. He wants yeah. to try to heal people by showing them what the consequences of sin are. Because in this life, like we're talking about, we can feel complacent in our comfortable little worlds and we could say, oh, we can kind of get away with anything. I don't see the consequences of my sin. Yeah. And to warn us, he I think he uses suffering in a some sort of positive way. Right. Yeah. To but it's for our good to try to warn us beforehand, to kind of shake us out of our complacency, to humble us. Again, like it says, the Leviathan looks down on the haughty, it's king over the proud. Or as C.S. Lewis said, you know, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and again, Ben, I completely agree with you on this. I'm not, and I wasn't trying to say that God is not using the pain in any sort of way to bring about healing or redemption. What you're saying is, is what I was trying to get at with the mysterious nature of it and with yeah. digging deeper and seeing the big picture and seeing the context. And all of that is exactly what I'm talking about when digging down to find the golden nugget of what's going on is yeah. what you're saying. And then it starts to reveal more and more light to what's happening while not undercutting the loving nature of God at all. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And so that's what I, I found in just really quickly to, in Clement of Alexandria is he's really good. He has a um, so one of his writings is called um, I think it's just called the pedagogue where the entire essay is basically about Christ as the divine teacher and physician. He talks a lot about in that this idea. So there's a quote that it really gets it across when people try to oppose the law to the gospel, the Old Testament law and the gospel, or the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. And he says something like, um, he says, both the law and the gospel are from the one energy or work of God for the salvation of men. He says both the terror of the law and the grace of the gospel both have a single end. Yeah. They're not opposed to one another, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're both for the healing and instruction or pedagogy of mankind for virtue and for salvation. Yeah, totally. You know, I've, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Yeah. The law is extremely important. It's there to show us our shortcomings and show us, you know, we need the grace. You know, yeah. it sets it God's standard for how he wants us to live yeah. in the redemptive creation. Yeah. Yet we so need the grace as well, you know, but we got to understand how important the grace is sometimes yeah. by seeing the consequences and the darkness of the sin and yeah. of the fallenness. Well, I would say even more, though, I, I think it's also part of say Paul's theology of the law, right? Where he talks about the, you know, the law was a pedagogue to bring you to Christ. That's where this idea comes from, right? Yeah. Is the law, and I think you see this in Romans as well, Paul's theology of the law is that not only did the law show us our own shortcomings, but it actually also was a positive grace to the people of that time. 
because it helped to contain and limit sin. So again, once we realize that sin is always this thing that spirals out of control, um, it's not just a purely individualistic thing, but sin always ends up corrupting and bringing death and damnation and sickness to a whole society. It's like an infection that spreads mm -hmm. through a society and then through other societies that interact with that society. And so there's this idea that the law was also this temporary thing before the pouring out of the spirit that would help to contain the influence and the consequences of sin. Yeah. It just goes back to like what we're experiencing now. We can use the metaphor as like a quarantine. So all yeah. these weird laws in, you know, Leviticus and what seem like really harsh laws and these death penalties and so forth are a grace for those people living in the context that they're living in to try to contain the chaos of sin. So the law is that hook that God's putting in the nostrils of the Leviathan yeah. to prevent yes. it from doing as much as destruction as it could. And so where from my perspective, we say, oh, that's really harsh. If we could have God's eye view, God is always working to try to limit the spread of this infection that yeah. is sin. And then with yeah. the outpouring of the spirits, you know, C.S. Lewis has this good phrase. He calls it the good infection through baptism, you know, in the spirit and the Lord's Supper and yeah. through participating in Christ in general. We're spreading this good infection or this antidote, right? Yeah. Total. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap it up, Brett. So any, uh, any final thoughts on this situation? Well, I'd just like to send out a message to all the theologizers out there that um, the Theo bros uh, will be praying for you, that we're going to get through this together, that all of our hope lies in Christ, that God does not give us a spirit of fear or, an, or anxiety whatsoever. Let's bring this entire situation to the feet of Christ and let him minister to us through this yes. and reveal to us what he wants to reveal to us as we grow through this difficult season and truly come out the other end stronger than ever. And not only stronger, but more rooted in Christ, which is where our strength comes from. So, yeah. Yeah. And I would echo that. And then I, I would also say along similar lines, Again, like Israel was supposed to be, we're the new Israel. We are meant to be the priestly kings who are helping to bring the light of God and mediate God's presence to the world. And part of that role is that we intercede in Christ like Moses did for the world. And so I think we need to come together and pray and intercede with God for the healing of everyone affected by this. Definitely. Pray for those who are sick. Pray for those who have died because of this virus. Pray for the comfort of the families and pray for those in the front lines and nursing homes and working cash registers and working in hospitals. Yes. That's definitely. part of our intercessory role, you know, in the kingdom. Definitely. There's power in prayer, true power. All right, theologizers, keep your head up, keep your hope up. Keep rooted in Christ. Keep your prayers going for all of those suffering through this time. And may the, the peace that surpasses all understanding descend upon all of you out there listening. Uh, we thank you for joining us for this episode of Theo Bros. And we hope to be coming back to you soon with a, 
another episode. So uh, we will see you soon, Theologizers. Take care. Take care, y'all. This is the Theo Bros Podcast. <laughs>